The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. This week, we're taking a break from Russia and Ukraine and focusing on the consequences of COVID-19 on warehouse valuations, travel restrictions, and the conference circuit. This Breaking Views podcast is sponsored by Refinitiv, a London stock exchange business. Welcome back to The Views Room. I'm your co-host, Amy Donlan, a columnist at Breaking Views, coming to you from the leafy suburbs of London. I'm joined by my colleague, Peter Tal Larson. Looking out the window at the hustle and bustle of Canary Wharf this week, life seemed to be getting back to some sort of normal. City workers are trickling back into offices, corporate travel is back on the agenda, and high street chains are busy greeting customers. This week, we're exploring three aspects of this next phase of the pandemic. First, Peter and I will discuss the future of warehouses after Blackstone received a 21 billion euro offer for its last mile logistics business. Next up, Peter and I chat to Pete Sweeney in Asia about Hong Kong's decision to lift a travel ban on nine countries and reduce its quarantine times to just a week despite a rising death toll. Finally, Peter talks to Lauren Silva Lachlan in New York about her adventures with lawyers and dealmakers at the annual Tulane Corporate Law Institute conference in New Orleans. Have we reached peak shed? That is one possible interpretation uh, of news that Prologis, the giant US owner of warehouses, is offering over 21 billion euros for Mileway, a specialist in city center warehouses owned by Blackstone. So Amy, you had a look at this story and wrote a piece about it this week. What is going on? So it's a really interesting story. So this Mileway is this uh, basically an entity in Blackstone that includes all of these uh, basically last mile warehouses. So these are the warehouses that everybody wants right now. This is Amazon, Inditex, you know, Zara owner. They all want to be able to be close to inner cities so that they have a cheap way of delivering goods. So previously they had been having warehouses out in kind of the suburbs. And now they realize the margins are really where densely populated people want to buy things regularly. So this is Mileway and Blackstone put it together in 2019. It was worth about 8 billion euro then. And as a result of some kind of savvy acquisitions and certainly riding the wave of online shopping during the pandemic, the valuation of this was 21 billion at their recapitalization, which just happened earlier this year. And now Prologis has come along and what the Financial Times said was that the offer was was more than 21 billion euro. So they're they're being offered a little bit more than than um, the valuation of the recapitalization. So some investors have already cashed out. Uh, one of Blackstone's funds actually stayed into this to this entity. So that is the big question for Steve Schwartzman. Is this this peak sheds? And certainly Blackstone in the past has made some pretty savvy calls on on kind of the top of the market. You'll remember back in 2006, 2007, there was obviously that big office deal that they did. They spent about $39 billion on America's largest office owner, equity office properties, only to kind of break it up and sell it off in bits just before the crisis came. So I think it would, what I would imagine a lot of people are looking at is if Blackstone does sell this entity, the signal that that will send about this market. Yeah, Blackstone selling, do you want to be buying? It's usually a good question to ask in corporate deal making. But I mean, I guess thinking about this a little bit, I mean, these these are warehouses, right? And so I take your point that the you know the idea is e-commerce has boomed, especially during the pandemic. People want 
want stuff more and more stuff delivered they want it delivered fast you know sometimes even like the same day or or in case of groceries even in a few minutes but on the other hand like how hard can it be to like uh, open a warehouse i mean surely if 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 there's demand for warehouses you're just gonna people are just gonna open more warehouses is there any kind of like competitive advantage to being a big warehouse operator Yes, I think that there's definitely an advantage because what you're seeing is in the big cities where you know these companies like Amazon are doing really well, like London and Paris, uh, they have really strict building rules and they don't want sprawling warehouses in the middle of their cities. So if you have if you have warehouses that are pretty close to the city, which Mileway already does, then this would be a very attractive asset. And so the other thing is, is because there's that constraint in supply and you have so many of these little kind of grocery upstarts that, you know, deliver nappies to you at 10 o'clock at night, which I have actually done before, they will deliver these things to you. And there is that means that the rents are likely to stay quite high because a lot of people want these warehouses. So that's another reason to be kind of if you were you were Schwarzman, you might be kind of thinking, well, actually, the valuations may actually go up. You know, the yields are at record lows, so three and a half percent. So rents have to go up quite high for him to do to do better than he's already done. But certainly from a lot of people I'm speaking to the property sector, there is no sense that that warehouses are waning. And if anything, online shopping forecasts are double digit growth. So you're talking kind of 12 percent growth uh, is what people are expecting over the next couple of years. And compare that to GDP growth. I mean, that is obviously, you know, some, you know, many multiples higher. Is there a sense here that maybe the, the, the tide might turn just in terms of with, with inflation and kind of interest rates going up? I mean, you said you said that you know, there's been so much demand for these for these warehouses that you, the yields in Europe are down to three and a half percent. I mean, if you're if you're buying a warehouse on a three and a half percent yield at this point, you're not even covering you're not even getting a real return uh, relative to inflation. So. Is there maybe a sense that sort of these these kind of like these real estate plays, like the the the, the valuations might adjust just because of what's going on with interest rates and inflation? Yeah, I think that's definitely the case, and certainly refinancing any of these property deals will obviously be more expensive now as well because interest rates are going up. So that is something that you certainly have to factor in into this whole idea, which I think is what makes this deal so interesting is that we're sort of at, at, at we're at a big turn in what's happening with with all of the factors that influence property and there's still this sort of hot sector that is red hot and the question is will it remain red hot and I think this deal says an awful lot about that. So basically so as you wrote in your piece so Blackstone has already or is in the either has recapitalized or is in the process of recapitalizing they already did it so 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 presumably they don't need to sell it anytime soon so it really then becomes a question of is 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 Prolog just off willing to offer them a price that they cannot refuse. And that's and that is something they probably can do. I mean, their share price has has gone exponentially higher. I mean, it's it's basically trebled over the past five years. Again, it's a big warehouse owner. It was warehouses were doing very well long before the pandemic, and the pandemic accelerated their idea as a must-have asset for, for lots of companies. Okay, so more to come from Amy on whether or not we reached peak shed. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Hong Kong is finally easing some of its COVID-19 restrictions. Pete Sweeney has been looking into the story and can tell us why it may not be as great for Hong Kong as it sounds. How are you doing, Pete? Where, where are you coming from today? Well, I'm in Hong Kong and uh, 
yeah, it's, it's rainy, so it's kind of a depressing day, but, <laughs> but um, yeah, things are not really looking as up as you might sound. So, I mean, the backstory is that basically Hong Kong has famously had one of the harshest quarantine systems in place since the pandemic began in order to, it, it has to comply with kind of the mainland requirement that in order to open up this border with the mainland um, to allow this key flows of tourism and business travel that are a huge part of the local economy here, that they needed to imitate or, or duplicate the results that the, the mainland had achieved, which was basically their policy called uh, dynamic COVID zero, um, which means you, you defeat the virus, right? You don't live with it, like you just don't have any of it. And for, for a couple of years that worked, it was annoying for a lot of expatriates, especially because it was very difficult to get in and out of Hong Kong. You had to spend three weeks in a very expensive quarantine hotel and they weren't all in the best condition, which was a big deterrent to travel. And of course, if you had to visit China, you had to quarantine on both sides. But that latter relaxed a bit, but even so, it was just very difficult to get in and out. Um, there was basically no tourism. And at the same time, the city kind of went through these, there were these constant mini outbreaks. So they, they never really reopened the border with China. And at the same time, like all these people, finance executives who you know had families in Europe or the United States or elsewhere, or even in China, you know started moving out because they just got frustrated. And now finally, the government has kind of eased up and said, okay, we're gonna start relaxing these inbound travel curbs. Like there were eight, eight or nine countries that you couldn't couldn't come back to Hong Kong from, even if you're a Hong Kong citizen or resident, as it were, um, including the United States. Um, so those are being relaxed. Um, the quarantine has been reduced from three weeks to seven days, which is a lot more feasible, especially if you have children. Um, so there is a certain sigh of relief going on, especially in the Western expat community. But there's a lot of downsides to this policy. Yeah. So, Pete, I guess looking at it from the from the West, I guess. People would say, well, oh, it looks like Hong Kong's finally sort of accepting reality and like other Western countries is sort of realizing that, you know, you can't have zero COVID policy is just not feasible, particularly for a, a world city, which which depends on people coming in and out and travel and so forth. And so that maybe that, that they're kind of heading towards what we have in the UK or in parts of Europe or in the US where are the sort of the basic acceptances we're going to live with COVID in some way and try and sort of manage the worst of the, the side effects with, with, with vaccines and so forth. But it sounds from what you were saying, like actually they haven't really accepted that. No. Well, the, I mean, so the, the, the media coverage has, the Western media coverage has perhaps unsurprisingly focused on, you know, on the stress of the Western expatriate community in Hong Kong. And so, you know, when you had, I mean, keeping in mind that before the pandemic came, there was all these political eruptions in Hong Kong. Um, so the story that has been written is basically all these Western expats are going to leave Hong Kong and it's no longer going to be an international financial center. And so any move that is seen as, as restoring their faith in Hong Kong, you know, seen as, as positive. And to that extent, the abandonment of COVID zero, which sort of harmonizes Hong Kong's policy with, you know, that of like, you know, most Western countries at this point, you're just kind of going to live with it. And even some Asian societies like Singapore, for example, or South Korea, is seen as a relief. The problem is, of course, that, that far more important to the Hong Kong economy than any Western or any white people or, or whatever is the, the connection with the mainland economy at this point. And this is going to make it harder to open the border with China. Which is a huge problem because, I mean, Western, like, it depends on how you measure it. Hong Kong measures its population different ways. Racially speaking, they break down, I mean, most of the, the, the population, according to 
the, the statistics, 92% is Chinese ethnically. And then the rest, the other 8% is mostly from other parts of Asia. And there's maybe 2% that are, that are Caucasian or we'll call them white people. So that's not really a big economic force in terms of driving demand for like at the retail level. It's not what's keeping these businesses um, that are serving, you know, tourism and retail afloat. That is Chinese tourism. And, and the investment flows that are going in and out of the city are going into mainland China. And Xi Jinping is, is not at all retreating from the COVID zero policy. So what you get is something that keeps, you know, part of this population happier. You know, while while making it more difficult to reconcile with this this big economic reality, you know, that Hong Kong, whatever it was 20 years ago, is now almost entirely about, you know, doing business with with this this 15 trillion economy up north. Um, and anything that makes that more difficult is is problematic. And that's the reason why the government has resisted it so long. I mean, the the, the administration of Carrie Lam has has bungled a lot of this. But I can't argue with their their basic economic priority that like if Beijing says you can't open the border unless you achieve this, that they needed to try and hit it. And now that they've surrendered, it's they're surrendering just because it failed. They just failed to get under control because they underestimated Omicron. They had two years to prepare um, for a more contagious variant. They had all these weird policies where they closed the beaches and playgrounds, but left restaurants and, you know, and, and shopping malls open. You know, they had all these strange policy ideas that they came up with and then abandoned, like, oh, we're going to force all the domestic helpers to get vaccinated. Um, no, we're not. We're going to back. We're going to test the entire population. Well, no, we're not. They went back and forth and back and forth. But what they failed to do was vaccinate their elderly. And there's been there was no serious push to do it. And now, you know, the death rate has just absolutely blown up. There's been a million people infected, 5000 dead, and it's still ticking along. And so this wasn't really like a success. This was just more an admission that like it's the the the, the ability to deliver COVID zero is long gone. Um, it's just not going to happen. And, and so that's really nothing to celebrate. So that that death rate that you talk about that that is obviously exponentially higher than you're seeing in other countries, is that something now that w- is going to be a, a difficulty again? As this, I mean, is there any sense that you're getting that? you know, they are going to vaccinate the elderly, that the elderly are getting more open to to becoming vaccinated. Because obviously for a lot of countries, as Peter mentioned, the UK, Europe, what has allowed people to sort of live with the virus is the fact that the vulnerable and the elderly are vaccinated. And so the death rate stays at a kind of containable level that doesn't kind of overload the health service. Right. Well, the overloading of the health service is really part of the issue. I mean, it's going to be difficult, you know, in Hong Kong, the government being as distrusted as it is um, over, over a lot of issues, you know, really has not inspired confidence that anything they say medically is credible. Um, in Hong Kong, you have, you know, uh, especially among the elderly, a culture that, that appreciates Chinese traditional medicine, you know, that is skeptical of Western medicine and, and receptive to kind of the, the, the media coming out of the mainland that's throwing shade on, you know, mRNA and stuff like that. Um, the government has never really made a serious push against this. Um, but the other problem is, you know, the, the, the underinvestment in healthcare. I mean, I was in a quarantine hospital with an elderly Chinese person myself, um, and it was just atrocious. And this was the beginning of the surge, but they were rolling refrigerated coffins right through the lobbies. Um, there were people stored in the, uh, you know, stored in the hallways, just warehoused there. You know, it's just, and, and you know, the, the city has, is much wealthier per capita than the mainland China is, but has a similar low ratio of doctors to, um, to people, so I mean, in addition to the failure of of the city to kind of convince the people who are most at risk to vaccinate, 
um, and instead offering them all these symbolic harsh moves that didn't actually deliver safety. I mean, it's also exposing this government's insensitivity to the need to to, to buttress its healthcare system. Um, so that's that's double the embarrassment, and people are paying for it with their lives. So if you're one of our banker listeners and you're thinking about a big trip to Hong Kong because you need to deal with your clients, what would you be saying, Pete? What do you think is going to happen over the next few months? Look, I mean, for like, I mean, the main question is like for, for people like me, like, can I, I haven't left. I mean, I've, I've been stuck in a single city for two years. I haven't gone anywhere. I have two children now. You know, they've never been on an airplane. That's quite unusual for Hong Kong, which is one of the reasons you live here is because you can go to the airport in half an hour and be in Vietnam or Thailand or whatever. Um, and, and nobody's gone anywhere. <laughs> um, so my question is like, OK, if I go, will I be able to get back? And again and again, this government is trying to kind of like please Beijing and please its local business lobby at the same time. You know, it keeps on flip flopping. So nobody trusts, you know, that the policy of the moment is still going to be there in a month. Mm-hmm. You know, so you have bought plane tickets, you've gone and they've been, I mean, you have neighbors who, who, who like left two years ago and have never gotten back. Their stuff is still here. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I would say it's a highly volatile policy environment. Um, a lot of people are going to start surging out. The concern then becomes like permanent emigration because like, if you look at the airport figures, like people are just leaving Hong Kong at just record rates, even before this liberalization. And the, the, the worry is that a lot of them are just moving to Shanghai or moving to London or moving someplace else. And they're just done with the city. But yeah, if you're if you're thinking about coming and visiting, you're going to have to wait. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> Might hold Zoom, on that. No, Zoom is probably still a safer bet. OK, well, thanks very much Pete, for your time and good luck with everything. Hope you get a flight out soon. One way you can tell that the world is returning to normal is that the bankers and lawyers and dealmakers and various other hangers-on once again reconvened in New Orleans for their annual conference, the Tulane Corporate Law Institute Conference last week. It's the first time that that conference has been held for two years. It was was held just before the beginning of COVID and and, and now just as we're coming out. And our very own Lauren Silver-Lochlin went down there to see what was going on. Hi, Lauren, what did you uh, find out? <laughs> Hi, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, no, it's funny. I guess you're totally right. One way we all know that the world is back is, is if everybody starts going to a conference again. And I think you're either like, you love them or you hate them, or in my case, you love to hate them. Um, and uh, it was crazy because two years ago when this conference took place, it was it was literally one week before the world shut down. And when the you know, everyone was there, people were sort of ignoring that COVID was even a thing. I mean, people were partying and, you know, sharing dishes. And um, here we are back again. And, you know, all sorts of turmoil in the world. Um, COVID still kind of, you know, bubbling in the background. And, uh, you know, you wouldn't think that anyone was any worse for, worse for wear. Well, that there was a Europe, war going on in Europe, for example. Absolutely. But, you know, we heard the uh, name... Uh, Khan here, who's the you know main U.S. trust buster, more than we heard Putin at the conference, which is pretty remarkable. Um, it just seems like the M&A community is extremely resilient and you know one track minded, if if you will. Yeah. So um, I mean, I guess one interesting thing about these things is 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 talking to people about about being the experience of being back at a at an in-person conference after two years of Zoom and 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 various other things. So you you went around and sort of recorded a few people's uh, impressions. Tell, tell me who did you talk to? I did. So yeah, in addition to kind of getting everybody taking everybody's temperature on the deal environment and the regulatory environment, which was sort of mixed, 
I thought it would be fun to hear how people felt um, going back to a conference after two years of being stuck in the living in their living room. And it was really amusing because people were all over the map. And, and to me, it sort of just reminded me of like the, I don't know, existential crisis I have every time you go to a conference, but like just the different types of personalities that, um, that show up at these conferences. I think anyone who's ever been at a conference more than one type can kind of see like, you know, how my father-in-law says there's 10 types of people in this world. There's like 10 types of people that go to the conference. So anyway, I like, the first guy I talked to was um, Steve Lippin. He's the head of a big communications firm here uh, in the US. And he's kind of like the, I would say the puppet master of the conference, always hosting all kinds of events and things. So anyway, here he had sort of a fun answer. Here's what he had to say. Steve Lippin, I'm the founder and CEO of Gladstone Place Partners. Feels very pre-COVID or COVID Eve, as you know, since you were here right on the eve of COVID. It does feel like we're back to normal. There are no masks indoors. People are sharing Sazeracs and <laughs> Pim's cups and people feel good about being back together. I don't have any business cards. I didn't know whether people gave out business cards anymore and they do. What was it like? I haven't worn these loafers in two years. And it turns out I never really unpacked from two years ago because the last time I wore them were, was at Tulane. I could fit into my, the top of my suit, but not the bottom. So that's another implications of COVID. And it's the first time I've worn a tie in, in a year and a half as well. So then the, the next guy I talked to is like who I, who I might want to call the sort of the conference guy. He's like the guy who loves the conference. He, you know, hosts all kinds of events at the conference. He's uh, a guy named Bruce Goldfarb, he runs a proxy soliciting firm here in the United States. Bruce Goldfarb, President and Chief Executive Officer of Okapi Partners. We are a proxy solicitation and investor response firm. There are so many ex feelings that you have when you get on a plane to go to a conference, but once you're at the conference, it just feels like you've always been at a conference and in conference mood. So in the U.S. in particular, the COVID experience was very different for people who lived in the north versus the south. I actually moved from Dallas to New York in sort of August 2020. And for me, it was a shock coming up north. The next guy I talked to, if you can tell by his sort of very nice gone with the wind southern accent, is, is from New Orleans. And, and um, his experience was very similar to a lot of those uh, people who lived in the south. My name is John Duck. I live here in New Orleans. I'm with the law firm of Adamson Reese. And I've been with the firm for 42 years. I'm a graduate of Tulane Law School. And uh, it's been a really cool uh, experience. And I'm glad to be here at this settlement function, having a cocktail and, you know, ignoring all of the COVID uh, issues. After I got the injections, I sort of ignored it. I mean, I wore the mask where I had to wear the mask and complied where I was required to comply. But otherwise, you know, I've, so, I've sort of ignored it. We've been back in our office probably 10 weeks after uh, the whole COVID pandemic began. And so, but everybody's wearing masks. Not everybody's in the office, but we've encouraged people to work, not remotely, but, you know, in the office together. So this last guy I talked to, he's, I, I really liked what he had to say because he's sort of like reflected, I think, just every everybody, sort of everybody's kind of very honest COVID experience. But, you know, the other thing that I noticed people at the conference were actually really just happy to be around people, to be engaging with clients that maybe they haven't even spoken to, or if they've spoken to them only a few times, that they would have more regularly seen in a non-COVID world. 
I'm Andrew Wilson. I'm managing partner of DrivePath Advisors. We're a financial communications and investor relations consulting firm. I definitely have lost my voice a little bit talking in a loud crowd. The other bit that is interesting is my feet are killing me because it's the first time I've been wearing shoes and walking around in a long time, having been uh, barefoot on Zoom calls uh, for the last couple years. I've definitely gotten energy from this. I, I felt like I slept better last night than I have in a long time. I just can't tell you how great it is to see people again and to have random conversations. I'm here at a cocktail party with some former colleagues who I haven't seen in a couple years, and it's just really great to be with people. Oh, well, thanks, Lauren. It sounds like you were uh, very actively social uh, in New Orleans, which is, I guess, what you have to do when you're there. Um, <laughs> I spent some but... time hiding in a corner, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but good to hear you're out and about again. And uh, uh, yeah, look forward, looking forward to the next gathering. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Taslick in London and Sharon Lamb in Toronto. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Acast, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.